Welcome to the Gritty Ladies podcast and a fascinating conversation with Brian Main. Brian's the founder of Goal Mapping, a technique with substantial brain science behind it that helps us set our goals. It's a technique I've been using for years to create and achieve my own goals. Brian was born into a traveller fairground family, left school at 13 with no qualifications and unable to read and write. He joined the family amusement business, established a nightclub and became the country's youngest licensee. However, in the late 1980s, with cheap air travel, luring his 18 to 30 customers to holidays in Europe, coupled with soaring interest rates, the business collapsed and Brian lost what seemed like everything, income, home and marriage. At the age of 29, Brian had a million pounds in debt. After a period of withdrawal, Brian transformed his life. Over a number of years, he used the brain science he'd been learning about to create goal mapping. Since 1995, goal mapping has reached over 5 million people in 30 countries. And Brian has written numerous books and audiobooks and has become an internationally recognized speaker. Goal mapping has helped people to achieve success relating to wealth, health, career, education, sport, weight loss, and indeed anything you can dream of. So sit back, strap yourself in, and enjoy this conversation. Well, I've got Brian Main sitting in front of me today. Brian, welcome to the Gritty Leaders podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here with you, Ian. Let's step straight in. You've had a fascinating background. Tell me what it was like in a fairground traveller family. It felt special, felt really unique. My family have been in the travelling funfair and circus business, or world if you like, it's its own little world, for generations. I can trace my ancestry back more than 100 years and great-grandfather and great-grandmother and their travelling amusements. For me, the experience was different from a lot of the other travelling kids because my father decided to take his amusements, his travelling amusements, to the seaside. And we would do that for the summer months. And so every year, I would have several homes. I'd have one home travelling with the fun fairs, and we would do that for about four months each year. And I'd have another home on the Isle of Wight, because we'd take all of the amusements to the seaside and open up for the tourist industry. And then I had a third home, which was our winter base, not far from Heathrow Airport. And we would park up the funfair equipment for the very cold weather months, and we do all the maintenance. And then the pattern would repeat again the next year. And so each year, three different homes, about four months in each home, and three different sets of friends. So I had my set of friends that were my traveling family, and that always felt like home. I had another set of friends on the Isle of Wight uh, where we would go for the summer season, and then another set of friends at our, at our winter base. And so different outlooks on life and, and, of course, different schools each year, and not much school each year because of traveling around. And so I only went to school maybe for five months each year, divided between different schools. And, and no school with the traveling, so it was just too hard to commute. And so I never, ever took any exams. I always miss them because of the timings of when we, when we moved. I never learned to read and write properly. And it's easy to think that's because of my lifestyle that I grew up in, but actually it's because of dyslexia. Right. My brother and sister had exactly the same lifestyle as me, and they were good scholars. And my parents uh, paid for me to have private lessons. But I, I just couldn't quite get the hang of it and found more and more behind the other children. And around 13, dropped out of education just before I was 13 and uh, went to work with my father full time. Was that in the amusement business at that point, Brian? Yeah. So uh, we had a range of equipment on the travelling fun fairs. But the equipment that was most successful was the amusement arcades. And my father had traveling amusement arcades. Uh, but then we also opened up the amusement arcades at the seaside. Gradually, uh, the seaside business become dominant. And my father was very successful. He bought more amusement arcades on the Isle of Wight. And as the business grew on the Isle of Wight, 
Uh, so gradually we spent more time there and less time traveling. Uh, the reason why I left school at 13 wasn't, wasn't just because I, I wasn't having a great time at school. In my generation, that was the normal thing. That was tradition. And my brother left at 13, my sister, all of my friends, my cousins, everyone I knew left school at 13 in that life, in that community. And the reason is there are no career opportunities. At the fun fair, uh, people will hire some temporary labour to do the heavy lifting. But there's no proper career jobs available. It's a self-employed life. And so normally the traveling children will start with that self-employed early. And my 13th birthday present was a bubblegum machine, a rocket, a rocket shaped bubblegum machine and a box of bubblegum and the keys. And it was my initiation into business. My father taught me to buy more stock, buy more bubblegum and save a percentage of the money and reinvest. And so I bought a pinball machine, and, and then after that, I uh, my big business breakthrough at about 15, I was one of the uh, first people in the country to have uh, a Space Invaders. Oh, yeah. Uh, one of the big, tall, upright ones, and, and I was very successful with that. Wow. And, and, and so you went from amusement business into a nightclub business. How did that happen? Well, by the time I was 18, I owned quite a lot of the equipment in my father's arcade. He confiscated it all when I was 18 because it was doing particularly well. And instead, he gave me a 25% stake in the business. And he'd been very successful. He'd uh, bought maybe another four, five different amusement arcades on the Isle of Wight. There weren't any more for sale, and the government wouldn't grant any new licenses. And so we needed a new direction if the business was going to grow. And my father set me the task. He said, here's 25% of the business. Go find a new outlet for the business. I decided I would open a disco. There was one not far from where I lived. I was 18 myself at the time. I counted how many people were going in every night. I sort of estimated how much they were spending at the bar and what the cost would be. And I could see it was a good business model. And we owned a big piece of property where there was a mutant arcade and an empty space above it. And so uh, I got permission to turn that into a disco. And I was given the license when I was just 18. And uh, nobody had ever done anything that, like that that young to be given a, a liquor and entertainment license. And I opened the club when I was 19. And it was 1981 when we opened. And uh, that was the beginning of the new romantic scene, adamant, face, face paint and frilly shirt, and uh, alternative look and alternative music. And a lot of the standard discos, nightclubs in those days wouldn't entertain it. Places like Top Rank, for instance, weren't interested in that new look and style. But I loved it. And uh, yeah. the thing that I did that was really successful is I went to my relatives and I took all of their old funfair junk. My uncle had a, like a big warehouse. There was lots of stuff stored in there, old broken galloper horses and bumper cars and candy floss kiosks. I took all that junk and I gave it a coat of paint and I put it in as the decoration in the club and people loved it. It fitted right in with the alternative new romantic scene. And people started coming from all over. And so we've become very well known. We're in lots of music magazines. There was even a documentary made about the place. And people would even come from abroad. And so uh, I did that for 13 years. And it was a mega successful for me. I was very wealthy, very young. But then everything uh, changed. And it's strange how life can change suddenly, dramatically, often unexpectedly. What triggered this? I mean, I know you said there was the, the, the recession in the 90s. Were there other things that happened? Did the scene change? Uh, yeah, it was like a perfect storm in. The recession, interest rates doubled you know, to 15%. The nightclub industry started to change with more and more pubs being granted late night licenses where they could open till two o'clock. But the big killer for me, uh, where I was operating, was affordable airfare. Late 1980s, early 90s, the price of air travel come right down. And it triggered a change in the behaviour of English people 
who've started taking their main summer holiday abroad. Some of them even bought houses in Spain and places, and they stopped taking their main summer holiday in England. And my customers, Club Med, 18 to 30, they were some of the early adopters. They were some of the first people to leave, and they all started going to Ibiza or Falaraki or one of the party islands, basically. Not coming to the Isle of Wight anymore, different island. And and I just couldn't work it out at first. You know, why why did they want to go to Ibiza? Well, the sunshine's guaranteed. The nightclubs are open all night. They don't finish at one, two o'clock, open all night. And it's where everybody else is going. Of course they're gonna go there. And so the Isle of Wight started to die because the only real industry on the Isle of Wight was tourism. And by the early 90s, uh, the young family groups weren't coming to the Isle of Wight anymore. And by the mid-90s, even the old age pensioners uh, were off to Spain with all of their friends on a little guaranteed sunshine and cheap vino trip. And it became a very, very sad time for a lot of seaside resorts, not just the Isle of Wight. But the Isle of Wight was particularly badly hit because of no other tourism. And it's quite expensive to get here with a ferry crossing. So people that wanted a, a cheaper British holiday, they would go to one of the mainland resorts where they could just drive to that, whereas with the island, they can drive. They've also got to pay the car ferry, which is an expensive crossing for the distance. And uh, everything started closing down. Hotels closing down, many of them burnt down for insurance money. Shops, every other shop in the high street closed. Unemployment black spot in the south of England, suicide rate. I went sky high. It was a really, really sad time. And uh, my family's business was one of those that went out of business. And so at age 29, I suddenly hit this life crash completely outside of my immediate control. And the population on the island, local population, especially young people, is quite low. There are a lot of older people here for retirement, but not enough young people to feed the disco all year round without the holidaymakers. And so it, it just become an uh, untenable situation. So I found myself in a million pound of debt, age 29, business gone. My home was repossessed. My brother's home was repossessed. My mum and dad's home was up for repossession. They were 65. But because they were 65, the uh, bank held off a little bit to see if they could get things together. But it, it literally wiped out the whole family. Uh, cars, personal possessions, just so many things repossessed. And after everything was repossessed, we had a lot of property there was still a million pounds left owing. And so I had no qualifications. I had no formal work experience because I'd only worked for the family or myself. And uh, nothing to write on a CV, job application, and couldn't read and write. So uh, it was a grim time. And, and I, you know, I was very scared at the time because I just didn't know what I would do. And life was looking very dark. And I, and I felt awful because I was the oldest son and uh, my mum and dad had retired just a few years before, thinking everything's great. And, it, and it, all, it all went badly wrong, really quickly as well. It was, it was quite a quick thing when I look back on it, just a few years from boom time to bust. So the transformation in your life, and obviously it didn't happen in 24 hours, I can imagine, but you, you went from a massive low and and it would be hard for anyone to pick themselves up from where you'd been you'd had this meteoric rise if you like you'd had success you'd had a great business you're an entrepreneur and suddenly you had nothing and you had debt how did you start to turn this around and start on this new journey i hid at first uh, the isle of wight's a small place where everyone knows everyone and i was particularly well known and I had a life that I know many people envied. I drove a fast red Italian sports car. I lived on a, a big three-story house on the seafront. I had a nightclub to play with, and I, and I was married to uh, an amazing woman. And a lot of people envied it. And when it came crashing down, I know there was a lot of people that um, weren't that bothered about it. And I didn't want to show my face on the street because I didn't want people questioning why everything had gone wrong. And my, uh, my marriage had broken down under the pressure. My wife had run away with another guy. I'd moved back into my parents' old house in my old bedroom waiting for the repossession people. 
And I just stayed in my old bedroom in my parents' house, not wanting to face the world and the questions that I knew people would have. But after about three months, there came a knock on the door and it was some friends calling and, and they were calling to see how I, how I was. But really their motive was to pitch me to join their sales team. And they had a direct sales team and uh, they offered me a job. It was commission only, which I didn't fully understand at the time. But what they convinced me was that I needed to do something and get out of my bedroom. I was getting more and more depressed. I wouldn't go and get help from the doctor or anyone. I was having a lot of dark thoughts. And so I, I joined them in their sales team, and I didn't sell a thing. <laughs> it was absolutely hopeless. And I was so miserable and negative. You know, nobody wanted to spend time with me or buy anything from me. Uh, but the turning point came when the team put on a workshop to learn about positive thinking, self-improvement, and goal setting. And the truth is I didn't want to go to the workshop. I thought it was going to be a load of psycho babble. I didn't even really know what the term meant, but I thought you know, it's going to be that. And it's going to be some guy at the front of the room asking me some difficult things. And, and I'm probably going to need to read something. And I was trying to keep it a secret from people that I couldn't read and write. I didn't want to go, but uh, when I went to the workshop, it just completely opened my mind uh, because this amazing guy who came in to present the workshop, and he was one of the pioneering trainers in England teaching good quality personal development. His name was Mike Rosewarn. And he sadly died very young, but for a few years, he became my sort of foundation coach that taught me all of the early principles I learned about positive thinking, conscious success, and goal setting. And the things that I learned from him, and it started on this one day in the workshop, learning about brain science, not complicated brain science, just simple brain science, that, that positive thinking is a science, it's not just a, a thought. And it was learning that that helped me to both turn around my sales figures which went from the lowest in the team to the highest, but also to turn around my learning challenges and to overcome the dyslexia and to teach myself to read well, which took about a year. And the combination of learning to read, uh, which felt like a magic key. A lot of people in adult life, I think, take it for granted because they've been doing it a long time. If you can't do it, and then you can, it feels like a bit of magic because so I tried for many years. I just couldn't do it. And uh, this guy helped me with positive thinking to break through those. And, of course, once I learned to read, I wanted to read absolutely everything. And fortunately, this, this great guy, Mike Rosewall, directed my focus into only reading personal development for the first few years. And I would go for a book a week. I learned to speed read. And all the things I learned, I started to apply to my life, and, and life took off. Life improved. And a lot of people wanted to know how I'd made the improvement. And so I started making presentations about whatever books I'd been reading. And what I was particularly interested in always from the, from the very beginning of my personal development journey, I was interested in techniques because I started to realize, well, there's actually a lot of people that know personal development, they're just not doing much with it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like knowing it's good to take some exercise, but then not taking the exercise. So knowing about it is nothing, but applying it can work wonders. And learning techniques for self-motivation, positive thinking, and of course, things like goal setting, I believe are, are crucial to apply the principles of personal development. And so I would run these workshops and teach other people what I'd learned. And mostly they were people in my same sales organization at first. And they were using the techniques and their results were improving. And then I was making more and more presentations. And I, I realized I'm spending more time and I enjoy more making presentations, and I do going out and seeing clients. And so I made the switch into training. I was offered, completely by surprise actually, a job with a training company in London 
who had the license for Tony Robbins in Europe, and also Dr. Stephen Covey, Brian Tracy, Jim Rohn, Zig Ziglar, uh, Grindler and Bandler with NLP, they, they'd sort of cornered the market on licenses to operate all these top American speakers. And I was recommended to them, and, and gradually I become one of their top speakers and was put into training programs to learn the work of people like Stephen Covey and the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And it was during that time, and making lots of presentations around the country, that a, a question became really dominant in my mind. And that question was, why are we not teaching simple positive thinking strategies and goal setting to our young people as standard in state education? And the, the reason that question becomes so dominant wasn't just because of my own experience that personal development is, was for me the missing part of the puzzle, but that I heard it from so many other people when I was making presentations. People say, well, I wish I'd heard this when I was at school. So I was thinking, well, why aren't they teaching it? And the more I thought about it, the more I realized positive thinking and goal setting is a science. And, and quite simply, there is a right way and a wrong way to do it. If you set a goal in the wrong way, your chances of achieving the goal are dramatically reduced. And it's important to learn the right way of goal setting. And actually, most teachers don't know. And that's part of the reason why it's not being taught. It hasn't been a formalized, if you like, uh, a standard a formula that you can follow. And so I started to study all the different ways that people suggested setting goals and writing to the various experts. And I was very fortunate that I got to meet people like Tony Robbins, Stephen Covey. I was out for dinner one night with Brian Tracy, able to talk to them, take their ideas. And then I was driving my car very late at night through London in 1994 thinking obsessively about this question. And I had a flash come into my mind where I saw a goal map. And I saw the whole thing complete. What makes a goal map distinctive is that it's like two pages, if you imagine it. One page where the map is in words and another page where the map is in pictures. And I realized instantly that this was a key thing for goal setting or intention setting because it helps us to engage in both sides of our brain or both aspects of our mind. And the left brain is more focused towards conscious mind, logical mind, which thinks in words. And the right side of the brain is more focused towards our leadership mind, creative mind, which thinks in pictures and is connected to our our subconscious. Our subconscious works like our own autopilot regulating all of our habits. And if we want our goals to be really powerful, we need to have both words and pictures so that we are consciously clear about the goal and also that we, through the pictures, have influence in our subconscious and command our subconscious to help us achieve the goal. This is why athletes use a visualization. The pictures help to enhance their performance as well as telling themselves obviously what they want to achieve and uh, it came in 1994 i um tried to give it to the training company i was with and they didn't want it i didn't want it and didn't want me to teach it either but i couldn't get it out of my mind it was sort of there every night when i was trying to go to sleep and i really felt that it was something special and so i made the brave decision to leave my job and I loved it. I, I was on a good monthly salary as well and accessed all this amazing training. People said I was crazy to leave the job. But I left the job and I set up my own business in 1995 and uh, very quickly landed a contract with Mercury Communications as a freelance trainer going in there. And uh, they wanted some simple positive thinking and goal setting their team leaders but the program become really popular with them and so originally I was supposed to be with Mercury just a few months to run a few programs but word spread around the organization and I was there a year and a half and around about 5,000 people from Mercury 
all went through the goal mapping workshop and created goal maps for their intentions. And many of them, of course, achieved their goals. And gradually, uh, people were getting in touch by phone or email uh, to say, I've achieved all my goals. And, and one was to be a manager, and I now am. And I'm a manager at British Telecom, or I'm a manager at O2, or Orange, or wherever it was they went to, uh, mostly within the communications industry. And uh, I've got my own team, Brian, I've got some budgets, and would you like to come run that same workshop for my people? And so it just organically spread, and some executives had a very glittering career, and from early on they were using goal mapping, and wherever they went, they would invite me in. So places like IBM and Microsoft and Siemens and Disney and Coca-Cola uh, were all uh, places that adopted goal mapping based on word of mouth recommendation from executives that had used the program in other organizations. Uh, sometimes it would be sales teams, sometimes leadership management groups, uh, sometimes graduate programs for people like British Telecom. Uh, but it uh, really uh, spread uh, based on that word of mouth recommendation. And then once I wrote the books, uh, they started to get some good publicity. And so then, then there was more spread. And now it, it's reached a great many people around the world. And Brian, tell me, how does it fit with traditional performance management appraisal systems, uh, you know, now it's OKRs, objectives, key result areas. There's all these traditional forms of goal setting in organisations where people sit down, it cascades down from strategy at the top. If, if a leader is sitting there listening to this thinking, I've never heard of goal mapping, this sounds fantastic, I understand this left and right brain, people adopting it, buying into it, the brain science behind it, but how is it going to fit alongside an organization that already has a sort of objective setting system in their business? It's good that you use the word alongside because it's not necessarily a replacement for. And the reason why people like goal mapping, and I had a, a very senior executive from Italy last night talking to one of my groups about it. All the key information is there on one page. There are seven steps to goal mapping, and those seven steps represent, well, what do you want? What's the priority? Because there may be a lot of things you want, but it's important to know the priority thing to be achieved. Why? Why do we want to achieve it? When? How will we do it? Who's going to be involved? And these seven steps are the critical aspects of conscious achievement. Now, those seven steps form the goal mapping process, and they are fractal in nature. So a, a fractal pattern can be infinitely repeated. Very often, a goal map will be created of an initiative, an intention, that involves a lot of people, and then gradually more maps are created to drill down. So, for instance, some years ago, uh, British Telecom used goal mapping within a big program they had where 2,500 people from British Telecom all created goal maps. Now, it started with one goal map from the senior team, capturing all that key information in words and pictures in a single map which become the vision for BT Retail. But then it was drilled down to the 11 channels that make up BT Retail, and they all created their maps of what and why and how and when, pointing at the main map, and then down to managers, team leaders, individual salespeople. And goal mapping is used by organizations, large and small, in lots of different ways. Sometimes, as Siemens do, it's used in project management. Now, they will still write out reams of critical path analysis and all of their different detailed information, but they will have a map because it captures all the key things in a single page. And it's a great way of communicating goals, which is how B&Q have used it in the past. 
at their conference. Because when you get people into the system, you can show someone your goal map. We have uh, online software that makes it really easy to create the map, share the map with the rest of the team. And with the software, of course, you can update your map. So a lot of organizations will use goal mapping as a personal development plan. Halfords, for instance, I ran their graduate program along with BTs and other people, and the new graduates would create a goal map of their aspirations, their career path. And on that goal map is what they aspire to, their position in the organization, and uh, why and when and how and those things. Who are their mentors? Who's going to help? And that map will also be shared with their immediate manager and brought out in their performance review. And it's quite often that HR will be copied in, for instance. We ran a session recently for a Greek client and uh, around about a 1,000 people involved in total. And again, they're creating maps and then they're sharing that with their manager and they're getting feedback. So they're using it as a personal development plan, but it can be used as a project plan. And it's used as a sales motivation aid and workshop uh, with a lot of sales teams. Often in the leadership work, uh, people are creating a goal map, but of course, in the workshop, it's really a growth mindset workshop. The workshop, to explain the power of goal mapping, explains how the science of positive thinking and growth mindset works. And it's explained in very simple ways, but it becomes one of those aha moments for many people. Everyone, positive thinking is something that everyone's heard of. And, and occasionally you're even told, think positive. You know, it's good advice. But if you don't understand how it works, if you don't realize there's a science, and then a lot of people never, ever get to grips with the fact that we can, each of us, learn to choose our thoughts. And it's when we choose to focus on the positive. And this is a skill. We have to practice it. It's how we develop greater levels of free will. But the thing that I've learned, and I've taught to so many others now, is that if you can focus on the positive in a negative situation, you will find the answers and the way out. Capturing those positive thoughts, those good ideas, on paper is what a goal map does. And then the key is to work the map. And so when you have a new idea, what is happening effectively is you're joining together two or more brain cells. And if the idea is a positive idea, then those brain cells are also releasing the feel-good chemical of serotonin or oxytocin, which also gives us a motivation as well as feeling more happy, more positive. We also feel more motivated. The challenge is a little while having one of those new ideas, uh, we often go into self-doubt or something happens that distracts us, and the brain cells break back apart again. By using a goal map, simple one-page record of your ideas and motivations and all of that aspect, and you look at the map and it reminds, it re-establishes the brain-cell connection. It re-releases that little feel-good chemical. And very importantly, it not only reminds the person of the idea and where they're going and what they're doing, but it reinforces the brain-cell connection and the command to the subconscious mind to move us towards the goal. And this principle, of course, works for anything we want to achieve. While I started off in corporate with goal mapping, it spread to education and then into therapy. And it's used now to help people overcome addictions. Uh, a lot of slimming organizations use it. A lot of sports people use it. We even have world champion uh, sports people using it. Because whatever you want to achieve, the principle of how you join brain cells together and command your subconscious mind for success is universal. And so it's really just about the person using the system and how they want to apply it in their life.
And of course, that's also true within business. There are multiple applications, but it works in harmony with other systems. But certainly putting KPIs on the map is something that many organizations will do. It's interesting because I've been through your workshops a couple of times and um, I think the first time I came across you was when I was a member of the Academy for Chief Executives about 12 years ago and I think you presented to a group I was in there and I thought, wow, this is incredible. And then it must have been another nine, ten years after that, I invited you in. I think we were down in Hereford and you... Again, it's one of those things, sometimes you do something once in your life and it makes a, a sort of prick, you know, and you remember it. And then suddenly it comes to life the second time. And all the stuff you've been talking about here on brain, brain science and positive thinking. I, I'm a big fan of Sean Aker and all the happiness stuff he's written about and the positivity and the fact that, you know, as you said, the brain cells join up, you get the endorphins, the serotonins, the oxytocin, and the negative thoughts have the reverse effect of course if we, we you know we get the cortisone actually blocking the way that the the, the uh, dendrites um, link in the brain so when you gave all that background and you gave the brain science background and you gave the positive thinking background to the people i uh, were in that room that day in hereford uh, that you spoke to to me that was almost the most important part of getting to the goal mapping because it was the aha moment as you just said it's like that's how my brain works in simple terms. That's where I can get a positive thought from. That's what happens if I have negative thoughts. It doesn't really work. They don't connect. I don't take action. I don't move forward. And to me, that was the real gem, if you like, that led to me, ah, oh, right, now this goal mapping, let's look at this in real detail now because it makes so much sense. So it was, I've seen a lot, because you talked earlier about techniques, bring techniques to life and people don't bring techniques. I think the beauty of the system, if you like, that you've created here is you've got both. You've got that background that says, this is why, this is why it will help you. This is why it comes together. And here's the technique, here's, here's the process, this is how you can do it. So for me, it was extraordinary to see both together and I, I'm so glad you've explained it to the people listening here and the fact that it sits alongside the traditional models if you like in organizations today. So I wanted to go to another just a couple of more questions before we wrap this up. You've taken this around the world haven't you? You've taken it to you know 30 countries or more. Does it work in every culture? How's it? I mean there's lots of cultures in different companies in the UK you've worked with, I'm sure. But when you go abroad, are there cultures that, that rapidly grab this and others that it's harder to work with? I think some cultures are more goal-orientated. I've spoken in more than 30 countries, and we have a lot of people that have become certified in the system. And again, it's more than 30 countries. The only time I've met any type of resistance is sometimes when I've been speaking to a group who are very religious and believe that God sets the goal and it's not right for us to use our free will and set goals. But I've had that maybe once ever uh, when I was uh, working in the Middle East and generally uh, people adopt the system like you said, once they understand. One of the great barriers with teaching goal setting is so many people have tried setting goals, not achieved them, and don't believe they can. And again, it comes back to explaining you know, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. I really uh, remember that workshop for you in Hereford, uh, one of my favourite workshops. And not long after lockdown, and so I hadn't spoken to a live audience uh, in person for probably a couple of years. And it was such a joy uh, to present uh, for you and your group. They're a great group, but they asked also great questions. Sometimes goal mapping is used just for the technique. A lot of coaches and therapists use goal mapping as the doing part of their work. So they're, they're being engaged in therapy with someone. And then when it comes to setting some goals, maybe around their uh, health and well-being, their weight perhaps, 
and they use goal mapping to capture those ideas and the person continues to use their map afterwards. But I believe it's only when you have the workshop that you fully understand why the technique works. And like any technique, the more you work it, the more it works. And it's not complicated to work goal mapping. Creating the map is the start of the work. And then using it, and the way you use it is you just view the map, perhaps once a day at first, less afterwards, and update it as you move through the actions towards the achievement of the goals. It is a very common experience for me to also hear what you said about the first time you liked it, it was good, uh, back with the Academy of Chief Executives. Uh, but then it was when you heard it the second time that the penny dropped more. I think partly I've, I've probably got better at explaining it. So that, that might be one, one reason. So it was probably 10 years between presentations for us. Uh, but I, I do hear from a lot of people, uh, because many organisations will book a goal mapping presentation every year as a kickoff event. And I'll present exactly the same information most times. And people go, oh, that was so great today. I, I didn't hear that last time. They go, you didn't, why didn't you say that last time, Brian? Well, I did. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I think uh, sometimes, even with simple things, we need to hear them more than once. And one of the things that's really struck me uh, in, uh, in these recent years particularly is that when I first created goal mapping and I started teaching it, there was nothing else like it. There were no dream boards, vision boards, and uh, it was just the way people wrote goals was only with words, and it's very limited to write goals uh, that way. And so I thought I had something new until I, I was invited to a Hindu ceremony. And I went to a temple in London and I sat down this Hindu ceremony and I watched the Brahmin priest chant a mantra words while drawing a yantra, uh, a pattern, lots of squares and triangles that all interlock. And the pattern has a meaning. Of course, the words have a meaning. Buddhists do exactly the same thing. They chant affirmations while creating visualizations or pictures. And they would create those with colored sand or colored rice. And a number of different faiths. Zoroastrianism does the same thing. Now, the goals they're setting are slightly different. I am peace. I am love. I am happy. It's still a goal. It's an intention. It's a command to ourself, to our conscious mind with the words, and to our subconscious with the imagery. Because the subconscious mind responds to imagery and patterns. And that's its language. Only by using this combination of the two do I believe we achieve whole brain activation. And, of course, what that leads to, and this is one of the benefits that so many organizations have mentioned that comes from the goal mapping workshop and using the system, is when you engage both sides of your brain, get whole brain activation, what it leads to is innovation. Because you're able to look at the existing situation, whether that's the product line, you know, the conveyor belt, whether it's the process, you can look at the existing, and with the right side of the brain, you can see the next evolution, and with the left side of the brain, you can make a plan of how that can be achieved, working with the existing and the team. And uh, all sorts of industries have really taken to this. Uh, for quite some years, I've worked with people like Baggeridge Brick, Marshalls Aggregates. These are like old-fashioned, heavy industry. Baggeridge Brick originally were only going to have the program for the sales team. Uh, but gradually, again, word, word went round, you know, and, and we had guys right down from entry level in the packing sheds right the way through to senior management, but all buying into this principle of Use your whole brain. It's a whole brain game, modern living. Use your whole brain 
to see where the improvements are in the business. And we want everybody's improvements. And it, it created a real buzz because uh, the workshop being a growth mindset workshop, growth mindset is something that improves all the areas of our life. And so it wasn't just that we were making uh, things better for people within their workspace. They were able to take it with them into their personal life, home life, if they wish. And, and uh, because we have a children's version of goal mapping that runs in schools, and many executives were sharing it with their family. So it's been a really interesting journey. I could never, <laughs> I'm a goal setter, but I would have never have predicted it at the outset. Either. It is extraordinary. And I think, as you were saying, um, when you started, you were coming along and people were seeing this whole brain and this brain science and this positive thinking. It's quite new for many people to listen to and hear. I think now with much more written about brain science, much more about growth mindset being written and read, much more about positivity being talked about. It, it must make it in, in some ways easier in that people are making connections themselves to other things they've read, heard about, listened to and thought, ah, oh, yes, this, this actually fills a space for me. Yeah, it's a really good point. I faced so much resistance in the early days. Typically at the start of the workshop, if I go back to like 1995, 96, 97, that sort of time, people would be sat in the workshops, arms folded, looking down, you know, completely unengaged and not wanting to be engaged. Some of them didn't even know what it was they were coming to, of course. They hadn't really been told. And quite typically uh, in an organisation like Cable and Wireless, who I did a lot of work with, for instance, we would start at the management level, but then as you get down into team leader level, people wouldn't really have been to a, a workshop on self-improvement before. And so a lot of resistance, a lot of suspicion, a lot of questioning. And I don't see any of that anymore. I've been invited to, to speak at the National Sales Conference. Uh, again, I've spoken for them several times over the years. The last time I spoke there was 2019 and uh, 600 or more salespeople and they're hanging on every word and I'd sort of compare that to 20 years before and it's very different at the end of my workshop 20 years before people would walk out arms uncrossed and nodding their head and saying yeah actually that was really really good you know and then many of them would become raving fans and be recommending it into other organizations or schools. But I see there's a greater openness and a greater acceptance. And for some years now, growth mindset has been accepted by schools. I think the challenge is there are some good programs, but there's a lot that don't have so much substance. And so I think the experience people have sometimes is quite varied when it comes to attending a workshop on a positive thinking, growth mindset and, uh, and goal setting. For me, I believe it's all moving in the right direction. And of course, so many people at the moment and young people looking for help with their mindset because of uh, almost like an epidemic of depression and sadness in a lot of people and various reasons for that. But all of the material in the program, of course, helps with that. And so uh, not only are we running corporate workshops, but we're running workshops for the community and uh, people that are, are struggling. The, the thing that is so important, I believe, to understand is that We've evolved as humans over a very long period of time. And for uh, if, you, if you take it, we've evolved over millions of years. For a big chunk of those millions of years, our main survival instinct was to go into fear. Fear, fight or flight response. And when the danger was a wild animal that wanted to eat us, it worked fantastically well. But in quite recent history, really, in terms of uh, humans' evolution, uh, we have a different life. And in modern life, the dangers are different. Uh, there's not very often a wild animal that wants to eat us. 
Uh, it is more often for most people, the danger is, am I going to lose my job? Is it going to be a bad year with the numbers? Uh, is business going to be hard? Is there going to be a recession? Is my relationship safe? Have I got some serious illness? I've got a pain in my side. Maybe, maybe it's a serious illness. Are my children happy? All of these uh, modern problems of life, cost of living crisis, wars, climate change, all of these modern problems need a creative solution. Creative solutions come from staying positive, not by going into fear. Fear may be the motivator, but it won't help us find the answers. Because when we go into fear, just like you said, uh, we release chemicals in our brain and glands in our body, cortisol and cortisone. And what those do is they really limit the spread of thought. They shut our body down, lymph and immune system and uh, our digestion closes down, but our brain also closes down uh, because cortisol is a neuroinhibitor. It's the opposite of serotonin. Serotonin joins the brain cells together. It creates cohesiveness in the brain. Whereas cortisol, when we become negative, we go into the fear response. It, it shuts our brain down. In fact, the more negative we become, the more stressed we are, the less clearly we can think. And uh, there are loads of studies that show this, but I know it from first-hand experience when I've been in very traumatic situations. And so learning how to stay positive, that's what helps us to find our, our way forward in the dangers, the modern dangers we face in life. And if people aren't shown this in a very simple way, as you've experienced in the workshop, and it's simple enough that we run this same workshop in schools for children, but it's also deep. And of course, if you understand it and then you start to practice it, and goal mapping is just the tool to help you put it into practice, but the principle is that by staying positive, we find the answers to problems, we help ourselves have more motivation. And it's not something that some people are born with and other people aren't. You know, it's some people are blessed with a greater natural level of serotonin in their body. But it's something that all of us can learn. We can train our brain to release more serotonin. And it's a powerful life skill. Lifelong, but also life-wide. It's a skill that helps us gain and achieve all other skills, abilities, qualifications. It's amazing what you've done, Brian, and um, I benefited personally. I remember when we were in Hereford doing my own goal map again, and one of the things was I remember on the visual side of the map drawing a picture of a view with a sunset over some hills, and it was a sunny place and there was sea nearby, and guess what? Three years later, I've, I'm here now as we record this, and I had no idea this house even existed in Spain. So it, it's, it's, I find the whole concept, it, it's quite magical, if I can use that word. When you start to say, uh, and I've seen this in all sorts of ways with goal setting, goal mapping, stretch, you know, getting people to stretch their, their views of the future, what they could achieve, trying things you've never done before, and then you get that growth again that comes from it. And I do believe both physically and mentally as human beings, we just so much underutilize what we're capable of. And I think what you're doing here is allowing people to get more of, out of their lives, if I'm not being too you know, religious about this, but we really are allowing people to to see what, what can happen. What can happen if I'm positive? What can happen if I set a goal? What can happen if I move forward? What happens if I start to join the dots and see what's, what's out there? And I, I, I do think it's a, an incredible thing you're doing. But what I wanted to ask you is, uh, what's your biggest goal now? Because you've, you know, you've worked with business, education, religions, communities, the biggest businesses in the world. Clearly, there's huge appetite for this everywhere. What's your next big step here? Some years ago, I set the goal to reach 7 million people. I'd always held uh, my work that it was a purpose for me. A purpose and a goal are similar but not the same. 
and, and the major difference is a goal has a very specific target date to aim for, whereas a purpose doesn't necessarily have that. It's more of a direction and a journey. And for many people, their career will be their purpose and achievements along the journey in that career are the goals. And for me, sharing goal mapping was my purpose. And I remember being sat in a park not far from where I live at Botanical Gardens, near to the start of the year, early January, doing my own goal setting and thinking, OK, what do I want to, um, what do I want to achieve in the next year and, and why do I want to achieve it? And I heard this little voice in my head saying, it's your purpose. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm living my purpose. And this voice said, yeah, but how much? How many? Is it one person, 10 people, 100 people? How many people do you really want to help? And to this day, I feel so grateful. And this is a, an amazing guy years ago taught me goal setting and, and then died. So I've always felt like I'm sort of honoring his work. And I thought, I, I need a big target. And from somewhere, again, this voice in my head said, seven million. Help lift seven million lives. And the words were quite specific, help lift seven million mm -hmm. lives. And I dismissed it because it seemed just a crazy big thing and quite ego-centered, I felt, in some ways. But I, it kept coming back, so I put it down in the map. And as soon as I put it in the map, my mind switched to how. Okay, it's great to have the goal. How is that going to happen? Now, I can hope that one of my books becomes uh, fabulously famous and uh, you know, I get invited by Oprah Winfrey onto her show and that's going to help me reach 7 million. But if that doesn't happen, I need a plan of a logical way that I can go forward. And uh, what I saw was, okay, writing more books, extending the product line so that people have things to work with, uh, make big presentations at conferences my priority rather than smaller workshops, work with leaders wherever I can so that they can trickle down the information and influence a lot of people. But the thing that become the obvious strategy for me was to help other people teach the system if they wanted to, and lots of people did. And so I started a train-the-trainer program, a certification program, and there are now 1,570 people certified, some in business, some in education, some in therapy, some in sport, and, and some working across all the different areas. And uh, last night, again, on my, uh, on my master class, there was a lady from Finland who becomes certified in... 2015 and a little bit like you and she used the same word it worked like magic she was in a workshop with me in 2015 and she set a goal map that she wanted to teach goal mapping and she wanted to be an international trainer and she wanted to do a lot of different things and at the time she was unemployed and she did the goal map and she said like magic things started to happen and i know a lot of her career since that time and she has spoken to thousands and thousands and thousands of people she's run workshops on goal mapping for so many thousands of people all across Europe and into the Balkans and uh, just amazing really and so the reason why goal mapping has reached a lot of people it's the collective effort and my goal going forward is to enhance that as much as I can because although I have 1,570 people and, and we think like another two three joining this week there's next to no representation in America or South America or India. And so now with the online system, and I'm in the third generation uh, with the new platform we've had built, it's an interactive web app, we're able to create private areas for organizations and run our coach training. And so I really feel that I can achieve my goal of reaching 7 million. I reckon I've got another 2 million to go. It's taken me 
nearly 30 years to get to 5 million. 1 million of those are school children. But I feel in the next few years, I'm 62 now, I think I've got a good 10 years work life in me. I think in these next 10 years, I'm going to, I'm going to exceed that 7 million number. My goal for this year is to get our new online teacher empowerment program up. We've got all of our corporate work online already for people to access whenever they want, uh, but we haven't yet got our education work fully online. And I want to be able to create something that makes it really easy, really accessible for teachers to learn this, download all the resources they want to, and to apply it then in their school. And we've already trialled this uh, with some teachers in Africa. Again, we've got a, a guy in Africa, he's just a superstar. Couldn't really afford the programme and uh, he could have never afforded to come to the UK or I would have needed to have been sponsored to go there. Uh, but we've helped him learn the programme online and uh, so many thousands of children he's now taught goal mapping to. And the first of those have now gone to university they're coming from little villages and he's teaching them in, in like uh sheds and places but the first time we've gone to university they've become nurses and teachers and uh, he's so charismatic he's been invited to speak all over nigeria into kenya also japan and uh, recently he's uh, done presentation online for bulgaria and yeah, so it's those stories when I when I hear about them that are my motivation uh, to keep pushing myself. And I'm I'm running more presentations than ever. It should be really easing back, but um, because technology has made it accessible, and I've really invested in the technology to make it a good experience for people. I I was doing this long before the lockdown because I saw it was part of the strategy that I would need if I was going to follow through my goal of helping to lift 7 million lives. I had my first online program in 2009, and I ran my first webinar in 2010, but they weren't attended because people simply didn't want to learn online back then, and the technology was a bit clunky. But it gave me the foundation which we've built on over the years, and. And now uh, it's become, for me, a, a standard way of helping people. Even when I run a physical workshop, I'm following through a hybrid approach of helping people apply the technique. That's part of the magic key. You know, it's one thing to set the goal, but then if you apply the technique, your chances of achieving it are so much increased. And that's true for a team or for an individual. So we do a lot of team follow-through, and of course we get a lot of individuals following through in our public masterclasses. Uh, it's, it's interesting, you said how discovering really, and I had a question down, but you've answered, sort of answered most of my questions I had written down as, you, as you've spoken. So we, we must have been on sort of parallel tracks in thinking where we're gonna go with this. And one of them was, this feels like a calling, this feels like a purpose, not like a job for you. And I think that really comes through, and I think, in the same way, I remember hearing another speaker, very different from you, but actually some parallels, who's also worked with Stephen Covey, a guy called Brad Waldron, who you may have come across, lovely man, Australian. And the first time I heard Brad speak, I said to him afterwards, I sat down over lunch and I said, you get so much energy from this, Brad, why is that? He said, because I'm on purpose, Ian. And it was the first time I'd heard that phrase and I see it coming through with your energy and your focus and your never ending goal to create more and go to Africa and get into the US and, and so on and so forth. So it's very stimulating to listen to you, Brian, and I could do it all day, but I think we're gonna to have to wrap this up. And I'd like to wrap it up with a final question. You're on the Gritty Leaders podcast and the final question we always ask is, Who's the gritty leader you most admire? Alive or dead? Could be somebody that's just given you inspiration, uh, you've drawn energy from. It could be the person you mentioned earlier, uh, Brian Rosburn, or it could be somebody completely different who you just look at, or it could be anyone you like. But who for you would be a gritty leader you most admire? Several uh, that come to mind. I'm very inspired by. Winston Churchill. However, 
some sometimes in leadership it takes so much determination that that determination can turn into stubbornness uh, which is i think how winston's later years may have been and more and more i'm inspired greatly by people like nelson mandela and his uh, leadership and i know that he had many flaws I mean, in his early years, particularly, and was branded a terrorist. But I believe he really grew into his sense of purpose, a true, a balanced leadership. And I've been fortunate in my uh, speaking career to sometimes be at an international conference. And I've met people that were part of his team. Everybody that I've met is absolutely genuine very caring but strong guy you know strong in what he had to stand for but at the same time leading from the heart he was leading from a place of passion and this was stephen covey's teaching lead from the heart manage from the head and it so resonated for me and like you said earlier i believe what happens in the journey of personal development is that we gradually piece together all the, the different things that we hear that sort of make sense for us and gradually it forms a bigger picture. And Stephen Covey, I, I really admired him as a leader because he was, again, very genuine man. He was the same man if you met him in person as he was up on stage. And I think that's one of the hallmarks often his leadership is the person is consistent in who they're being, because they're being, being themselves. And so I think for me, Nelson Mandela gets top prize, but it you know, would also Gandhi. <laughs> I, I recently watched the film again and so inspired by the stand that he made and the peaceful way in which he did it. Well, two wonderful examples. Brian, thank you so much for your time today and coming on to the podcast. If people want to get in touch with you or find out more about goal mapping, uh, where do they go? To find out more about goal mapping is just goalmapping.com and uh, you'll find the sign up there for the online software, which is free to use. There's a lot of free materials. And to reach me, Brian at goalmapping.com. So pretty simple stuff and uh, happy to hear from anyone. Always looking to help where I can. Great. Brian Main, thank you very much. Been a pleasure, Ian. Nice to see you, my friend. You are on purpose, for sure. Thanks very much, Brian. Enjoy the Isle of Wight and that wonderful scene behind you. Thank you.